0: Good morning, church. You can turn in your Bibles to Mark in chapter 8. Just to, as a sake of reminder, we are on the heels of Peter's confession. That confession of the apostles, marking that they would be the ones on whom the church was built because of their faith, because of this profession. And our text this morning falls on the heels of that. And it was a direct notice to the apostles of what that confession would mean. And it's a reminder to us what that confession means for us if we have taken that, if we've been given that grace of knowing who Christ is. So look at Mark chapter 8 and look at verse 34. talking of Jesus, it says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is a high charge. And on our own, we cannot accomplish it. The best among us, the most determined among us, the one who has the most good by worldly standards, still does not have the resolve, determination, the wisdom, the skill, the courage, and certainly the righteousness to bear our cross for you. This morning, Lord, as we unpack your word, speak to us through your spirit so that we can be conformed to the image of your Son, and we can do what otherwise would be impossible. We ask this in his name. Amen. There was a non-conformist pastor in England. At the time when anyone who was not doing what the Church of England under Catholic influence would do, there was great persecution It started with threats to take away property, to take away land, to take away pulpits, if what was preached did not conform perfectly to what the church was saying you had to preach. And this pastor, although he had a fulfilling and full life, ministering to his people, had always loved woodwork. He'd always loved building things with his hand. He'd always loved going and taking a rough tree and turning it into something beautiful and into something useful. And once these edicts started to to come down from the church, that this persecution would lead eventually to being defrocked, for lack of a better term. And ultimately, and the writing was on the wall for all these non-conforming pastors, that death was certainly on the table, because those closer to London, those closer to the city, had already been brought to the stake and burned for their convictions that the Bible was to be preached and not some message from Rome, it became clear that this pastor's days were numbered. And so when this became clear, with every tree he fell, with every board he planed, he would take that finest Piece of wood in the entire tree and lay it at his doorstep. He would take the rest of the tree and turn it into a table. He would take the rest of the tree and he would turn it into a pulpit for a neighboring church. He would take that rest of the tree and turn it into something useful for someone in his congregation, even for those who are antagonistic for him in the town. But from every tree, he would take the finest piece of wood he could find and he would stack it next to his door so that every time he went in and every time he went out, he would think of this pile of wood. And he continued to preach the gospel. He continued to preach verse by verse through the text of Scripture, even knowing that the threat of martyrdom was over his head. And So finally, when the church sent out those to gather him up because he would not conform, he would not bow the knee to the church of Rome, He opened the door, he greeted them, and the only thing he picked up was that bundle of wood by the front door. And they said, you're not going to need that where you're going. And he said, this is precisely what I'm going to need where I'm going, because I know what lies ahead for me. It's not the noose, it's not the guillotine, it is like so many other non-conforming pastors that have gone before me to be burned at the stake. And I knew that. I knew that going into this. I knew that this was my eventual end, unless God would spare me. But I preached, and I pastored, and I led, knowing that this was what was going to befall me. And so every time I came in my in my house and out of my house, I saw this stack of wood, and it reminded me that everything I did may eventually lead to dying for the name of Christ and the sake of the gospel. Now, this story is certainly apocryphal, but it illustrates a resolve, and it illustrates what our text talks about this morning. It illustrates a determination, and it illustrates a faithfulness that we are called to as followers of Christ, The idea of bearing your cross is not unlike this fictional story of this pastor who every time he saw those pieces of kindling, knew that his fate would be burning at the stake because of his opposition to a tyrannical government. Verse 34 then in the text, what we just read, is the key verse. In understanding our full passage this morning, which goes up to chapter nine, verse one, Everything depends on understanding verse 34. And once again, it says, if anyone wishes to come after me, and notice who he's talking to, the crowd and his disciples. This is not something that is just for the 12. This is something for anyone. If it says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? This is something that's become some sort of a colloquialism in our day. We talk about bearing the cross of having a difficult coworker. We talk about bearing the cross of a, a complicated relationship. But taking up your cross, where we get that phrase, where we have kind of mitigated its power and its value, is truly indicative of the symbol of pain, the symbol of shame. We think we're only a few weeks away from Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and the cross, the cross that stands above all other crosses, is pictured vividly as that instrument of which pain and shame and death was imposed upon our Christ. And although it was also the mechanism by which our salvation was achieved, we cannot and we must not lose sight of the fact that the nature of the cross is one, first and foremost, of pain and shame. And part of that pain and shame, we know of Christ himself, was to bear the burden, the physical load of that cross as he moved his way to Golgotha. Christ was not the only one who was crucified. Certainly his crucifixion stands head and shoulders above all other crucifixions, but crucifixion was the punishment, the execution, the capital punishment du jour of Rome in the first century B.C. and the first century A.D. Christ was not the only one to be crucified, and the way that he had to carry his cross, was not he was not the only one that this happened to. And so when Jesus says, those who follow me... He must deny himself and take up his cross. everyone knew what they meant. They knew that he, they meant that following Christ was now going to be a constant reminder that your life was not your own. a constant reminder that punishment, that pain that antagonism from the world would not be far behind but he makes that ever so clear when he says that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And so consequently, you, you, can, you can make this logical connection that not taking up your cross and not denying yourself or putting down your cross, you're effectively putting yourself above Christ. Now, we'll talk more about what this means, but ultimately, what it comes down to is if you are not willing to bear the burden, the personal, first and foremost, and the cultural and the spiritual cost that it requires to follow Christ, you're saying, this burden is too much for me. I cannot handle this. Then you are saying, I don't deserve this. You deserve this, Jesus but I don't deserve this. You deserve the cross, Jesus, but I don't deserve the cross. By not denying yourself, you are, in fact, lifting yourself up on a pedestal and you are lifting Christ up on his cross. And of course, this is the natural state of man. In our depravity, this is what we want to do. Anything that gets laid on our shoulders, we want to brush off as quickly as possible. And if given the option to see Christ on the cross, we would say, yes, that is fine. You do it, but I want no part of it. The call of discipleship for the apostles, for, all the, for anyone else who would listen then in the first century as Christ was speaking, and for anyone else today, is to take up your cross, to deny yourself. And then Christ, in his wisdom, in, his, in his, uh, his, his condescension and speaking to us in ways that we can understand, giving it to us frontways, backwards, sideways, up and down, he gives us three examples of what it looks like to take up your cross. And the first one we see in verse 35, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, what's Jesus asking people to do here? Is this some sort of denial of personality or the denial of individuality or denial of of being a person? Is this some sort of call to martyrdom? Is this some sort of commands to some sort of Christian jihad? No. But Christ is drawing a great distinction. He is saying that you need to deny the illusion of autonomy. You need to deny the illusion that you truly are in control. One of the greatest reasons that people outside the church, but certainly inside the church, say, I don't want to commit myself to the fullness of following Christ is because I don't want to give up control. What a great illusion. How much control do you have? In that moment, when the heart attack comes and the pain goes down your your left arm and you have that tightness in your chest, are you able to say, no, let's start beating again regularly, please? We don't have that. In that moment when you even just begin to get lightheaded and feel like you're going to faint, can you say, no, chemistry, internally, biologically, fix yourself because I don't. this is inconvenient right now. As you're driving down the road and someone swerves into your lane, are you able to say, universe, let's make things better. We have an illusion of autonomy and control that unfortunately dictates so much of what we choose to do and how we perceive ourselves in the world. We have very little control of our own bodies, let alone the world outside. Jesus calls us to not try to cling to this lie that we are the ultimate autonomous authority. When we try to save our life by, 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 by gathering the, our comforts around us, by gathering uh, uh, and setting up a household and a way of life where everything is just so and perfect, such that when one thing deviates, then we lose our, our, our comfort, then we lose our confidence, that we lose our peace, then what we've illustrated is that we have not put our faith in Christ, but we put our faith in a man-made system, one of our own, one of our culture, one of our government, one of our economic standing, one of our authority, one of our power. Christ's call is that if you want to save your life, you let go. Does that mean you to go the complete opposite way and you don't save for tomorrow? You don't you don't, you don't store up enough food to feed your children. You don't have enough to give. Well, certainly that's not the case, and the whole uh, of Scripture illustrates that. But what Christ is talking about is, what is your mentality behind this? If you do wish to store up in barns and, and save and, and, and accumulate such that that is where your security is, those are the things that eventually, that, that ultimately you find your security in Christ's call is to, to take up your cross is first to lose your life. But he does it in a way that is reassuring. He says, But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's nothing else like this. There's no great analogy, there's no great illustration of you let go of something, and so then you reap the benefits. I suppose you could have a a a agricultural analogy of you are very you, you are very covetous of your seeds. You have seeds and you have worked very hard to acquire these seeds. And you have, you have taken care of them. You've kept them at the proper humidity. I'm not much of a gardener. I could be saying completely the wrong things. You, you've kept them in a proper place. You've kept them away from insects. You've kept them away from too much moisture. You've kept them away from being too dry and drying out, dropping them on the floor. And you keep them there because these seeds have the potential to turn into a great yield of crops. But until you let those go and you give them over to the ground and you give them over to those biological processes that exist because of the soil and because of the moisture and because of the sunlight and because of the insects that may eat them or may, through those insects moving through the ground, provide what those plants need to actually become something, then you truly won't yield anything. You're not gonna eat a handful of seeds and be happy. You have to give it up. You have to give it away. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So again, this is not some directionless giving up, this directionless giving over. It is a thoughtful, intentional, directional giving over. It's for the gospel. It is for Christ's sake. So this is the first choice that we see in this text. To take up your cross means to cling to your life and lose your life or cling to Christ and his gospel and your life will be safe. You'll say, wait a minute. Jesus is telling the apostles this. I'm pretty confident they all died, with the exception of John, a martyr's death. How in the world do you reconcile Jesus saying that if you cling to your life, or excuse me, you cling to the cross, then your life will be saved, when all of those men and countless others throughout the ages have experienced the exact opposite? This comes across as an ironic paradox to those who can't see. And remember, only in the last few chapters, the idea of sight beyond what we can actually see with our eyes, a spiritual sight, a seeing of God's economy, a seeing of the spiritual realities of the world, is what God has called his disciples to pursue. But we have this choice. We cling to our life, our comforts, how we think we're in control, or we give that up and we cling to Christ and his gospel. And here's the thing, church. Again, this is not some sort of mindless act that happens where we all dress the same and we all live these ascetic lives and we all live in a very mindless manner. This is a call to see the world and to enjoy its beauty and to enjoy the richness thereof in the worldview and in the mindset of how it was intended. Not in the perversion of our hearts, not in the perversion of our culture, but in the right way. Food and drink and family and nature and comfort takes on a whole new sheen and veneer when seen through the lens of the goodness of a gospel that extends far beyond something that happens in your heart, but a gospel that has consequences for the entirety of the world. This is the call to follow Christ. It reflects having proper priorities, that as we teach our children, as we begin that catechism again year after year, that we are not our own, we belong to God. This is our only hope in life and death that we are not our own, that we belong to God. And so consequently, who deserves more attention, you or him? He's not saying don't eat, don't drink, don't have comforts, don't do these things that you enjoy doing. But as you do them, do you do them for your own benefit and your own glory solely, or do you do these things for God? Are there aspects of your life that you make decisions and you do so in some sort of segmented way where this decision, there's no bearing on it by the Word of God, no bearing on it of worship, no bearing on it of anything that has to do with the gospel? And those are the kind of decisions that you make off to the side. Well, it's about money, so it's not really God's business. It's about pleasure, so it's not really God's business. It's about the benefit of my family, so it's not really God's business. As if there is something in this world, God's creation, the very thing that God is sustaining, that is not under his sovereign hand. Who deserves more attention? You, your interests, your pleasures, or him? And the joy of this is that we take all of those things And we run it through the worldview, we run it through the rubric, we run it through the grid and the flowchart of understanding the entirety of our lives and the entirety of our world through the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And again, although it does deny some things because they run contrary to the gospel, more often than not, what it does is it enrich and it illuminates and it gives better meaning and more value and more enrichment to those things. So we give him attention and now our life takes on a new flavor. But beyond that, it reflects having the proper priority of who knows best for you? You or him? Who knows best for you? Every parent has this moment of understanding that our children want things, but our children want things that aren't always the best for them. I can travel lighter if I don't wear a coat. Yes, but it's 14 degrees out. I know better. For the, And every parent in the room looks at one child at least. I, I, I am so excited to eat this giant piece of chocolate. It's a good thing to eat chocolate. Amen? We don't say that in this church. Everyone's... Moron. Who knows what could happen? The dam would break if someone said amen. That'd be the worst. It'll happen one day. It's okay. <gasps> (gasps) But dinner's coming. And there's a priority and there's an order. Dinner and then chocolate. That's not a hard and fast rule, children. That's just an example. Who knows what is best for you? Is it the one who has a limited, selfish perspective? Or is it the one who has an unlimited, righteous perspective? Who knows best? So who deserves more attention? Who knows best? And lastly, who can take care of you better? This goes back to the question of autonomy. We have this perspective that because we are reasonably intelligent, we are somewhat accomplished, that we have this, 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 this resume or these life experiences behind us that we know best. But it can all flip on a dime. It can all change instantaneously. And who can take care of us better? Parents, who can take, of our, take care of our children better? Grandparents, who can take care of your grandchildren better? Those who are employers, who can take care of your employees better. Christ is the one who truly sustains. Christ is the one who has the better plan. We may very well be the agents as parents, as grandparents, as employers. We may be the ones that he uses to do those things. But do we trust in our own understanding? Do we lean on our own understanding? Or do we tap into the limitless wealth of knowledge, of grace, of truth that we find in God's word, mediated through his son, blessed us to us through the Holy Spirit? We have to remember that, as Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian for a few cents, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, The very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't fear, because you are more precious. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So to take up our cross, we first lose our life. Secondly, to take up our cross, we must lose the world. We must lose the world. Look at verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is the soul? It's a nice, easy question. Without going into this in an exhaustive manner, the soul, your soul is the incorporeal, unfleshed part of you. That w- There's more to us than biological processes. What, what you see in front of you is not all of what you are. What exists your consciousness, that is also as much of you, if not in some senses, more of you than your body. But your soul is that part of you that is not enfleshed. At present it is, but it is not bound to it because we know when we die, we are separated from our body, but one day we will be reunited in glorification. But what is Jesus saying here? He says... What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This has become another colloquialism, something that we say that someone has sold his soul for this, that, and the other. No one ever sells their soul for a small business. No one ever sells their soul for, you know, something nice and cute. It's always like rock and roll that people sell their souls for. I don't know why that is. Just worth thinking about. No one ever sells their soul for something nice, right? I mean, I like rock and roll. But it's, no one ever sells their soul for, you know, I want to open a craft store, so I met the devil at an intersection and sold my soul to open up a yarn shop. It's always so I can play better guitar. There's probably examples of this in other cultures that, that change that paradigm, but, but it's entered into our, the, kind of the, the, the parlance of, of the way we, we talk about things. We sold their soul, and it goes back to this idea. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And this goes to the idea that you can't take it with you. If you have everything, if you have, have not given yourself to devotion, if you have not given yourself to obedience, if you've not given yourself to discipleship, if you've not given yourself to spiritual discipline, if you've not given yourself to Christ, yet you have everything, at the end of the day, you still have nothing. This is is, the from the world's perspective, the backwards economy of the kingdom of God. That you can have the ledger that has countless numbers on the proper side of the decimal point. That you can have all the storehouses, all of the barns, all of the fame, all of the wealth, all of the prominence, all of the power, and that moment when your life is taken from you, because it's only given to man a number of years to live, when that moment comes, you Have nothing if you don't have Christ. And why would you want this world, church? When Christ is talking about the world, he is not talking about the world and the fullness thereof, the the goodness of the world. He's not talking about the sunrise. He's not talking about the the sacraments. He's not talking about the, the love of family. He's not talking about those good things, those things that are able to be sanctified. He is talking about those things that are contrary to the gospel. It is the world in contrast to the kingdom. And what is this world? How does Christ talk about this world when he talks about, even in the next few verses, this adulterous and sinful generation? This is the nature of this world. This world is adulterous and sinful, just like the generation of his day. And is it worth it? Is it worth it? Think about the fleeting nature of of material resources. I don't know why I did it, but last night I got online and I looked at cryptocurrency values, and actually it's higher than it was, but it certainly isn't as high as it was a few years ago. But think about how many people, maybe even someone in this room, were wrecked because of their faith in fake money. Now, most money is fake these days. Sorry to break it to you. However, it illustrates how something could feel so solid yet be so ethereal. Something could feel so secure, yet be so fleeting. And that's just the stuff. Why would we want to embrace a world, embrace a worldview, embrace a culture, embrace a paradigm that uses people up and treats them like nothing? In fact, the default viewpoint, one that I don't think people hold to with great consistency, they can't, but the default worldview, an evolutionary worldview, doesn't put you at any place that's more valuable than a single-celled organism. All you are is a fancy version of that. And in the same way that we don't see any inherent value, any moral purpose, any meaning that exists in an amoeba or in an insect or in the small creatures that we, you know, that, that, that we don't pay mind to as we see them flopping in the wind after they've been hit by a car on the road, you have that very same lack of purpose and value. And again, thankfully, this world doesn't live consistently, and it doesn't act that way. It doesn't see us as purely biomechanical organisms. But when you ask the world, what is meaning, what is purpose, that is what's underneath it. That is the root of it. And if they say it's something else, then their religion is showing. But it is a religion that can be backed up with a crucified and resurrected Christ. That is the question. Why would we want to cling to this world? And so once more, you get a choice. You get temporary things or permanent things. You get things that feel good in the moment or things that have value. I think we understand that. I, I mentioned the, some of the, the, the scary aspects of financial investment a few minutes ago. But we also understand the benefits of good financial investment. Setting aside so that you can go out for dinner. I know that's a very short-term investment. Setting aside so that you can go on that trip. Setting aside so you can start up that business. Setting aside so that you can put your children through college. Setting aside so that you can do a thing that has purpose and value and meaning. We understand that it doesn't have the same pop in the moment, but that there is a benefit. And that's of something, again, temporal, but also that has a greater permanence. How much more ought we embrace those things that are truly permanent? Spiritual growth, spiritual edification, the love of the saints, and the worship that we are engaged in now that anticipates the eternal worship. But to do that, we must lose the world. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, to make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money, being content for what you have. And hear this, this is is not a a, a diatribe against money or against wealth, it is simply a contrast, because then he goes on to say, for he, Jesus himself, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? So whether it be money, whether it be status, whether it even be persecution. Again, something that when we talk about persecution, it means being unfriended on a social media platform. When we talk about persecution, it's somebody who might not be as warm to us when we pass them in the store. When we talk about persecution, it might be not having the fullness of opportunity that we have in in our community. But for the vast majority of Christians throughout time, and certainly the original audience of, of Hebrews and, and, and many who are reading Mark for the first time, that persecution, losing the world, actually meant losing their life. We are given the greater. We're given the extreme. We're given the, 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 the ultimate. But again, this is all in the context, of, uh, con- uh, the, the context of bearing a cross. So it shouldn't surprise us when that is the extent to which this may go. But we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So to take up our cross, we first have to acknowledge we lose our lives. We lose them and the, 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 the presupposed security we have on ourselves. but we lose it in the sense that we give it to the one who can hold it, who can maintain it, who can nurture it. We take up, take up our cross and we lose the world, but we don't truly lose the world we lose a bad version of the world. We use a crooked and broken, groaning version of the world so that we can enjoy the glimmers of the new creation that will be awaiting us, so that when we actually receive a world, it will be a better world, a perfect world, a world recreated without sin. But thirdly, as we take up our cross, we love Christ's blessing. Look at verse 38. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's our third choice. First choice, cling to your life or lose your life. Second choice, get this world or preserve your soul. Third choice, either you're ashamed in front of people or Christ is ashamed of you. This is the choice you have. You are either not, ashamed, actually I should say that you are either ashamed in front of people or Christ is ashamed of you. So this is, this is what Jesus is saying. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him. This text presents a negative picture If you put down your cross, because carrying that cross around is a dog whistle and is a siren for all of those who are around you, that this person is so crazy that they're willing to carry the instrument of their own demise, that then you become a target of derision and of persecution. If that becomes too much for you to bear, and you put down the cross then that illustrates where your priorities are. This is the negative. And so what does the text say? Not my words, the words of Christ himself, that the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of the Father. This is not unlike the seed that is scattered in Jesus' parable that we talked about a number of months ago. That there is great joy when the seed is, is well, there's, there's great growth, and then, of course, as Christ explains that, the one that there is great temporal growth, and then the worries of the world and the difficulties therein choke him out. I think we've all experienced this, the drastic conversion. I was in youth ministry for a number of years. And the numbers given at some of these retreats, and the numbers given at some of these conferences of how many young men and women gave their life to Christ, and even some that were in the groups that I supervised and chaperoned. And in that moment, and certainly the Lord is able to use these things, I'm not being, being derogatory towards these situations, but in that moment when the emotions are high and the band is on the fourth chorus and everyone else around them is crying then there is a propensity to do something. And there is a a, a, a rush of of euphoria. But what happens on Monday? What happens when the phone comes back out and the boyfriend or the girlfriend texts or the, 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 the draw to the lusts and the draw to the world comes back in? That's the fruit. And of course, going back to that parable, the fruit is the ultimate determination from our standpoint because we can't see with x-ray vision into people's hearts and souls, but the fruit determines the state of the plant. And oftentimes, both for young people and for adults, regardless of our maturity in Christ, one of the greatest tests is what we will say and what we will do in front of other people. It could be the water cooler. It could be the presentation. It could be simply standing around at uh, at some sort of social function. It could be walking down the street in your neighborhood with your pet. When you have an opportunity to say something or not say something, when you have opportunity to, to proclaim Christ or not to proclaim Christ, when everyone is going one direction and you feel like a salmon that has to fight going the other direction upstream, what are you going to do? That which is easy, that which no one raises an eyebrow, or that what you feel called to do? The Apostle Paul gives young Timothy, pastoring a flock, this command to be diligent and present himself approved to God as a workman who will not be ashamed, accurately handing the word of truth. It's interesting, there's two aspects to this command that Paul gives Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. But first, to be an approved workman who is not ashamed. So there's no shame in the message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, and all that entails. And, but he makes the point even finer, the apostle Paul does, by saying, accurately handling the word of truth, which means that even the difficult passages the ones that our culture has placed an anathema on, has said you can't say those things. That is where following Jesus goes over the line. When you tell people their lifestyle is sinful, when you tell someone no, when you start to make judgments about Jesus being the exclusive only way to heaven, that is where you have gone too far. But Christ's command about not being ashamed, excuse me, well, through Paul, the command of not being ashamed also entails accurately handling the world word of truth not saying, yep, that only mattered for them. It doesn't really matter for you, so don't worry about those. That stuff, really, before you get to the Gospel of Matthew, that stuff you don't have to worry about. Genesis to Revelation, the easy parts, the hard parts. That is what we are commanded to do and to not be ashamed, to believe those things first and foremost. And if I may, sometimes that's the most difficult thing you might not have faced the kind of adversity I've alluded to, and the very reason for that, that you and I might not have faced the adversity I'm alluding to in in, in this idea of being ashamed by the world is because you yourself are ashamed of these doctrines. We We can't overlook that. Is there something in the Word of God that you are ashamed to think about and that you are ashamed to come to a solid conviction on? Because you know that that will entail wrestling with conviction. That will require prayer. It will require lifestyle changes in what you do and what you think. Maybe the reason why you've not had to face shame from this adulterous and sinful generation is because you're going the same way as the adulterous and sinful generation. This is something we need to be cognizant of. We must love truth more than lies. And although we are called to love this world, we do so. We love this world, and we love those in the world with truth and with grace. So we take up our cross. We love our life. We take up our cross. We lose this world. And we take up our cross. We love Christ's blessing because, again, that's the inverse of this. We could reasonably extrapolate from verse 38 that if you're not ashamed of Christ, then he will not be ashamed of you. Drawing this to a close, we have one more verse. This verse could very well go into next week's message, but I'm including it in this week's message. Because again, the chapter markers are arbitrary, they are not inspired. Chapter 9 verse 1 says and Jesus was saying to them truly I will say to you there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. I think it would be appropriate to talk about this next week as we talk about the transfiguration but I think it's equally appropriate to talk about it this week on the heels of Jesus saying that he will be ashamed of those that that deny him when he comes in glory of his father with the holy angels. What is this coming in chapter 9, verse 1? The kingdom of God having come in power. I think there's two potential answers in the immediate text. One is verse 38, which talks about some sort of judgment. Of course, the issue of the idea of this this final judgment being the answer is that Jesus is promising in chapter 9, verse 1, that there are some that are standing here that will not taste death. And although some aberrant and unorthodox uh, Christian movements say that there are some apostles, the Apostle John, for example, the Mormons maintain, is still walking around today, I have not met him, so I guess I can neither confirm nor deny, because Jesus promised, not just here, but elsewhere, that he is going to outlive the apostles, I don't think that's a very appropriate interpretation of it. Secondly, there's the transfiguration, which is coming next week, a wonderful passage, something that I'm excited to dive into with you all. But the issue then is it's right about to happen. It's no great shake. It's no great surprise. It's no great thing for Jesus to promise that the 12 plus all those surrounding him are still going to be alive in a few days when Jesus does this thing. So although there are many that maintain this, I think what Jesus is talking about is something else. That 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 there are some of the those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. It could be his cross and resurrection. It could be the establishment of the church. Many actually believe that this foreshadows and looks forward to the great judgment that is coming in 70 AD on Jerusalem. All three of these events the apostles will alive will be alive for. And all three of these events are illustrative of the kingdom coming in power. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is in the business of revealing the kingdom and the kingdom coming. The gospels are, tr- are very clear all the way back when Christ's ministry starts, that he says, if I cast out demons, that you know the kingdom has come. And he does that as there's a guy in, the, in, the, in the, the background who has just been healed of demonic possession. So the, the kingdom has come and is continuing to come in fullness. It has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. And so the exact dating of what he is talking about in verse 1, there's a great diversity of perspectives on it. And I don't mean to, to, to shirk that. I certainly have my conviction on what it means, But I think the point is he's illustrating something. He is is drawing the apostles and those listening to him into an understanding that the kingdom is coming and it's a reinforcement of the immediate need to take up your cross. So although it's pertinent and important to understand that he's talking about an event, he's talking about something happening, he's talking about the time drawing near. And so taking up your cross is something that you don't wait for. You don't, you, you, you don't wait until the day when it becomes clear that things are getting difficult. Like that, the analogy at the beginning of the sermon of the pastor who stacked up that, that bundle of wood because it was always in his mind that persecution and death would be coming we need to constantly be bearing our cross as a reminder, first and foremost, that we are not above our Savior. You are not better, more deserving, or or, or should be free of any punishment in any way over Christ. We must remind ourselves of that consistently. And as we just talked about last week in verses 27 through 33, if our confession is Jesus is the Christ and all of that entails and all that means, then this is, according to the text and logically, the very next step. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus did what he did, this is our response if we acknowledge that what he did, he did for us. Not doing that. Shunning that, pushing that away, thinking that tomorrow would be a better day or the deathbed might be the time to do this illustrates that we don't understand who Jesus is and we don't understand what Jesus did and it doesn't rest upon us as a mark of our justification and our imputed righteousness. Lastly, we take up our cross knowing that Jesus has given us what we need and that is ultimately the most reassuring thing about this whole thing, church is that Jesus doesn't say, I did it. You might see something around Easter time with a picture of me on a cross that kind of gives you an idea of what the cross is like, have at it. As crass and as borderline blasphemous as that sounds, that kind of illustrates how we try to attempt to do this on our own and how attempts to do it on our own will fail. If we have that proper view of Christ, it is a view of a risen, ascended, and reigning Jesus who serves today as not only our high priest, but also as our mediator, who has sent his Holy Spirit, who as he says in the Gospel of John, that there is something better for you when you have my spirit among you. We have been given everything we need, both with Christ as our forerunner, and Christ as our advocate, and his spirit as empowering us to do those things that would otherwise be impossible. Face down death and face down awkward looks at Market Basket. Everything in between, we have been given the power and the ability to do, not because of anything we have accomplished, but because of the sovereign work of Christ. The great church theologian Augustine, one of his most memorable quotes in talking about understanding God's sovereignty in all things, comes from his confessions. And he said, My whole hope is only in thy exceeding great mercy. Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. God would not command us to bear a cross unless he would give us the ability to bear that cross. Remember that when your back begins to hurt, your hands become weary, and the notion of the pain that this will incur becomes too much to bear, that you can do it not because of who you are. You can do it because of who Christ is, what he has done. He has already borne the cross. So as now we move to the Lord's Supper, this ought to be forefront in our minds. That the cup, in representing the blood, and the bread, in representing his body, is not some sort of abstraction divorced from a cross that was carried from a kangaroo court to Golgotha, a cross through which his hands and his feet were nailed to, to hold him up so that his being a suffering servant would not only fulfill prophecy, but fulfill in total, the sins that we have brought on ourselves and the sins that we inherit that separate us from a good and holy God. When we look at these elements, we do not see Christ, but as we look through them, as we use them properly, as we take them worthily, then we have in our vision, our God, who has borne this cross already, who has done what we could not do and in doing so has equipped us and enabled us to do what we must do. He has given us what he commanded and he's allowed us to fulfill that. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how your son on earth in dealing with difficult, simple people, the apostles, So many others effectively dealt with us, illustrated what it means to follow you, illustrated what it means to bear our own cross. Lord, I pray that we will not love this world. I pray that we will not love this life more than we love the blessing of being close to your son, close to him in good days, but close to him in bad days. We thank you for this imagery. We thank you for this supper in which we are about to partake. And we ask that you bless us as we seek to observe and honor you. In the name of your son we pray. Amen.